We thank you for the blood of Christ that was spilled on the cross for us, the death that we should have died. We thank you, Lord, for salvation. We thank you, Father, for um, how you speak to us through your word. I pray that you would take over, that you would speak to us, and that we would be changed and look more like Christ after all said and done. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good morning. All right, good to see you all. And I uh, look forward to, uh, to preaching this morning. And uh, I'm basically going to pick up where Pastor Mike left off uh, last week. We've been in the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. And last week, uh, Pastor Mike pre- preached a message on repentance and belief, what the gospel looks like. And uh, just he's been bringing it every single week here in the Gospel of Mark. And I'm going to attempt to carry on <laughs> and do the best I can to fill the gap until he's back and continues on in a couple of weeks. So we find ourselves, what's, what's interesting, what's cool about uh, this next passage, we just talked about repentance and belief, and this next passage we're looking at this morning, 16 through 20, Mark provides a clear picture of what repentance and belief looks like. All right, and this, in this passage we find two things. We find a radical call from Christ, and we see a radical response from the disciples. So we'll jump right into this. We notice that this clear picture that we see with the disciples responding here, it starts off, notice, with a call of God. Now there's three things that, um, that we'll talk about here when we talk about the call of God. We'll look at an unlikely group of people that were called. We'll look at an unconventional way in which Jesus calls the disciples. And then we'll also look at an unwavering promise that is made in that call. So we've got an unlikely group of people, an un. Uh, conventional method and unwavering promise. The first has to do with the type of people that he chose to recruit. Now think about it. As we've been in the book of Mark, we see uh, Mark is recording the life of Jesus, and he has already made clear that the king of heaven has come to earth, the mighty king of heaven. He's been baptized. He's been set apart for his, to do his kingdom work. He spent 40 days in the wilderness where he's passed tests, he's passed temptations, uh, he's rejected all of that. Uh, we've learned that uh, last week that he's clearly stated his message in verse 15, and now he comes to the place right here at the beginning of Mark where he builds his team, his ministry team, in which he will invest and use to build his kingdoms. Now, it seems like there's some, there's, seems like there would be some pretty epic options, right? Like maybe... Uh, a million, two million man army, you know, just you know, recruit all these soldiers and let's march across the empire all the way to Rome and spread the gospel by force. No, or, or he could have made it easy. Let's just an army of angels. Let's do this quick. Let's spread this message and change people in a quick way. He could have done that. But no, we know that he chose to spread the gospel and accomplish his work in a different, unique way, a way that a human could never think of through a different kind of people It's an unlikely group of people. Look at verse 16 and 19. It says, As he was passing along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother, and it says they were casting a net into the sea since they were fishermen. That makes sense. Verse uh, 20 says, Immediately he called them. I'm sorry, verse 19. He says, Going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in their boat mending their net. So these are fishermen. They're working on the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee, the word sea uh, might be a little deceptive. It's really more like a lake, 13 miles at its longest point, six, seven miles wide at its widest point. And this small lake was loaded, is loaded with fish. And at that time would have just been filled with fishermen all across the sea. 
According to historians, each day you would have around 300 fishing boats fishing on the Sea of Galilee. There would have been at least 16 harbors. And so there's a lot of activity going on on the Sea of Galilee. Fishing was a very important and extremely large industry. Fish was the main thing that people ate in that area and all throughout the Mediterranean. So I say all that to say this. Fishermen in Galilee were busy, very busy supplying fish locally, exporting fish as far as Rome and Egypt. It was a lucrative business. And I say all that because I feel like sometimes we make the mistake of thinking the disciples maybe were like some characters off of like a Swamp People type of show. You know, that they're just these kind of backwoods, hey, I'm fishing, you know, just chilling out. And Jesus comes along, hey, we'll follow you, you know. But no, we know that they were businessmen. They were probably fluent in Greek, the international language of business and culture. They were sharp. They were skilled. They were very hard workers. At the same time, don't get me wrong, these are ordinary guys. They're skilled workers. Yes, they have a lot of common sense, but they're not formally educated. They wouldn't have been considered the most qualified in most people's eyes to come alongside Christ, to be the Messiah's ministry team, core team, to spread the gospel and make disciples. They didn't grow up in church. They didn't know or speak the Christian subculture lingo. These are ordinary fishermen. But we know as we read scripture, does God always take the most wise and the most powerful and the most high class in the world and on the earth to accomplish his purposes and his work? No. He has a way of using ordinary people to accomplish his most glorious work. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians one twenty six, not many of you were wise. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble birth. But God chose the foolish in the world to shame the strong. It really is an amazing truth, isn't it? That he takes ordinary fishermen. Now think about this. Whose minds were focused on their work and on the small trivial things in their little local area and eventually he turns them in to these worldwide gospel-proclaiming theologians, thinkers, students of the word, ministry strategists, and much more. And that should be encouraging to us because he continues to do the same thing today. He uses ordinary people and he uses them to do amazing things. He'll take someone who is just thinking about the small, minuscule things of life and expands their mind in ways they never imagined. You hear stories about people like myself who hated to read, who hated to study in school. <laughs> Anybody with me? I hated to do all those things. I was a horrible student. And he'll save a person like that and transforms them in such a way that he places an intellectual thirst inside of them and they become learners. And someone who can't even remember the last time they finished a book, all of a sudden, by the grace of God, is flying through books about the Word. By God's grace, begins to learn and grasp truths. That's just an example of how God amazingly chooses, t- takes ordinary people and transforms them to do his glorious work. We see that happening in verse 16 and 19 as he finds these men in their boats. And then in verse 17, we learn what Jesus is calling this, un- this unlikely group of people to. Verse 17, follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. Now, before we look at that call, I want us to notice a second important thing that stands out here. Not only an unlikely group of people, but an unconventional way that Jesus is calling them. Notice, does Simon and Andrew and James and John, are they finding Jesus? No, he finds them. Now, that might not seem very strange, but in the, the cultural context of, uh, of where they're at, when you understand Jewish tradition, it's a very unorthodox, strange thing that's happening here. Rabbis did not, teachers 
of the word, teachers of God did not seek out their followers. A religious teacher didn't go to a potential student and say, hey, come and follow me. That was unheard of. If you wanted to be discipled by a rabbi, by a teacher, it was completely dependent upon your own initiative to go and find them and work your way underneath their, uh, their teaching and their guidance and in the circle of their influence. However, here we find the greatest teacher, Jesus, going to them and to their world, not on his ground. He searches them out and finds them where they're uh, just living their everyday life and calls them to follow him. Now, this leads to a very, very important truth here, that there's a big difference in the type of authority we see here. There's a different type of authority than any other rabbi at that time. In fact, the authority of Jesus is something that Mark's been hitting on, whether you realize that or not, even in this first chapter. In fact, I believe that that's a reason why in this first chapter we see less details here about these different uh, occurrences. He's hitting some details, and that is important in the, in the narrative there, but he's skipping a lot compared to the other Gospels. And I believe one reason is because Mark's after uh, building this, this case for the authority of Christ. We see that first with this. We see that in the first chapter, he, has, uh, he shows that Jesus and demonstrates that Jesus has power over three things. The first thing is power over Satan. Where did we see that in the wilderness? When Jesus is out in the wilderness and he's being tempted and he's being tested and he rejects all of that and passes every test and he demonstrates to us that he has the power and authority over Satan. It's important. Next, he shows in his message when he says, repent and believe and you'll be saved and you'll escape the wages of sin. It is death and you'll escape the grip and the power of sin and you'll be able to you know, live a holy life and I'll empower you to do that. That message demonstrates to us that he has the power over sin. Not only the power over Satan, but the power over sin. And then this passage here, as he's calling these disciples, going to them, not them coming to him, demonstrates to us that he has power over the sinner. Simply put, it's this. We cannot have a relationship unless Jesus calls us. If he didn't call us, we don't come. John 6, 65 says this. No man can come unless the Father draws him. Um, and why is, that, why is that the case? It's because we're born spiritually dead. We don't seek after him. As Romans 3, 10 and 11 says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. In other words, you remember the old hymn, uh, I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. You've heard that, right? Uh, it's kind of catchy, snappy, gets in your head, right? But I think those lyrics are well-meaning and uh, I kind of understand what's going on there. But I, wouldn't it be more accurate, biblically accurate, not to say that we're just sinking deep in sin, but we're lying dead in our sin on the ocean floor. We're just not sinking deep in sin far from the peaceful shore. We're dead in our sins laying on the ocean floor. In the same way that someone who is physically dead is incapable of seeing and hearing or responding, in my spiritual deadness, I was no different. So Jesus' unconventional way of calling teaches us that he alone has power over the spiritually dead sinner and that only by being drawn by him, by his spirit, by the Holy Spirit, can someone respond and be saved. What does that look like for us? We're not sitting in a boat. We're not hearing Jesus call from the shore. We experience that drawing. Here's two ways. One way is when the spirit convicts a sinner. John 16, 8. Uh, through the teaching, preaching, and understanding of his word, and he reveals to them their need for a savior. That's the call. 
all right? Sitting under the teaching of God's word, reading the word of God, being discipled by someone. What happens is the spirit of God begins to convict a person of their sin. They begin to understand the seriousness of their sin and the penalty attached to their sin. And then all of a sudden understand their need for a savior. Not just, not just that they need to add Jesus to their life. Sometimes we say, Jesus is all you need. He's not all you need. He's all you have. He's our only option. And so when you come to that point, and you understand that and your mind is open to that truth, that's what the Spirit of God calling you looks like. Maybe you've experienced that recently. You, some of you remember experiencing that. Or part of that calling is when He's awakening in us an interest to, for spiritual things. He puts a desire in us that was never there before. Our appetites begin to change. You've experienced that. In this, in this, if you look back at, in your walk, do you remember those first steps, those first weeks, those first months when that you become more sensitive to sin? You find yourself going, wow, my appetites are changing. I'm loving the things that God loves. I'm hating the things that He hates. That's the Spirit of God calling you out of darkness. So in an unconventional way, He calls an unlikely group of guys. And the third thing that stands out about the radical call is the unwavering promise in the call. Now, the first two words there are, follow me, all right? But we notice that there's a very specific task that Jesus is calling them to, and that's to be fishers of men. Well, what in the world does it mean to be a fisher of men? They, of course, would have understood that analogy very easily. That's what they're doing. They're fishing. That's the reason why Jesus used it. Jesus is saying, hey, listen, guys, I know you can catch fish. I know you're very skilled at this, but we're gonna, there's going to be a shift here. I'm calling you to something new. Now I want you to come with me and I want you to fish for people. So right here, Jesus reveals clearly his plan to grow his kingdom, which is this, to use ordinary but transformed sinners like you and like me to fish for sinners, to preach the gospel to sinners around the world and to see people's lives transformed. It's a great analogy. If you think about it, there are a lot of parallels and similarities between fishing for fish and fishing for people. How many people fish in here? People, we got a lot of people that fish? Yeah. We know, we, we've all been f- at least fishing before, most of us. If you think about it, when you fish for fish, it requires a lot of patience, right? Well, it's the same with fishing for people. In fishing, there are a lot of times um, when you go fishing and, on a good day, and, you, and it's like you can barely get the bait in the water before you got to fish, right? I remember I was in Brazil last year on a mission trip, and we were on a boat deep in the uh, junk, uh, in the jungles on the Amazon River, and they threw the anchor down, and they brought us all out on the deck, and they said, here's some cane poles, y'all go fishing. We're like, what kind of fish are there? And they were like, piranhas. It's like, well, okay, this is cool. You know, so he gives me the cane pole, puts a piece of raw meat on the, uh, on the hook, drop down, on, I'm serious, drop down on the water, you feel something, hit it, and you pull it up, and there's a fish. It was amazing, all right? It was amazing until that moment right there, because then you pull the line in, and the teeth are like, you know, clenching the bait, and I'm grabbing the line, and I look at the guy, and he's like, what? He's like, what are you, are you a little girl or something? You're not going to get it off of there? I was like, I'm a girl, I'm a woman, you get it off, you know? <laughs> I don't care. I'm not touching that thing. So we all have, have had those experiences where they're just, they're just biting, but sometimes nothing bites, right? And if you're working to make disciples, you know that there are some times where there's some long, lonely hours of waiting. They both require skill. Skill with a net with these fishermen. Now, we don't use lures and baits in the sense that we, you know, bait people into the gospel or or we, we should not do that. We should not deceive and trick. But 
or our net is the gospel, but at the same time, we also ought to be able to give an intelligent defense for our faith. So I believe there is a similarity with the skill there. Should be able to answer difficult questions. They both require discernment, knowing where to fish is important when you're fishing for fish. Well, knowing where and with whom my time is best spent is important when fishing for people. Now, you might go, well, that seems a little unfair. Didn't Jesus uh, chase the, the little lamb that got away and, and you know, left the, the rest? And, but that's not really a correct understanding here as we're talking about this. And, you know, uh, if we notice as we look at the way Jesus discipled and ministered, notice this, he, he didn't waste himself on people that didn't want it. He poured into those who showed interest. And it's important for us to have discernment as well as we fish for men. So they both require discernment. They both require persistence. Jesus knew this well. The disciples get it at first. You know, they had problems, humility issues, ego-driven arguments. Uh, he needed, he had persistence. A good for, uh, fisherman doesn't get discouraged. They continue on. They both require quietness at moments. Sometimes the best thing for me to do and for us to do in a discipleship type situation or when we're sharing our faith is to avoid disturbances and keep ourselves in the background. And you could continue that analogy on. There's several, several other similarities, but we see that this would have connected with these men. This analogy is easy for us to understand. But look, it's important not to move on because let's look at the way that Jesus makes this statement. A lot of times we say, fish for men, I get it, go out and share my faith with people. But notice the way he says this. Notice the word will. He says, I will make you fishers of men. It's a promise. Do you hear what's being said here? Jesus is saying to Simon, Andrew, James, and John, come to me and I will train you to be a preacher of the gospel. I will make you a disciple maker. I promise that. That promise should do two things in us. It should cause us to do something and it should comfort us. Number one, it should cause us to evaluate our lives. If if it's true that Jesus will transform his followers into fishers of men, and I claim to be a follower of Christ, I should be fishing for men. I should intentionally be seeking to share my faith and seeking to at least make a disciple at any given time. It should comfort us to know this, the second thing, that Jesus is not just mighty to call us and save us, he's mighty to sanctify us and change us. If there's any place to amen, that's it. Let me say it one more time. It should comfort us to know that Jesus is not just mighty to call us and save us. He's mighty to sanctify us and change us. I need that. Because I'm going to be honest with you. I, at moments, I feel like a mess. I feel like if this thing's up to me, it's over. But Jesus says, I will make you fishers of men, which implies that he is the Lord, not only of our salvation, but of our sanctification. That's a comfort us. 1 Thessalonians 4.23 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. It also says in Philippians 1.6, uh, a more familiar verse maybe for some of us, that he who began a good work in us, will what will he will complete it. This is an amazing amount of authority that Jesus is speaking with. Do you see that? Come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Only the Son of God could accomplish this. So we have an unwavering promise I will make you fishers of men in an unconventional ways, finding them, seeking them out. And uh, Jesus is calling, uh, them, uh, calling this unlikely group of fishermen, and he says, follow me. And how do they respond? So I'll say that again. We have an unwavering promise in an unconventional way, calling an unlikely group of people, and let's look at the way that they respond. It's a radical response. We see two ways that they respond. 
The first way, notice that the response is immediate. Immediately they respond. Look at verses, uh, and I know we're reading this a lot, but you can't read the Bible too much, right? Verses 18 and 20, it says, Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Then look down in verse 20, it says, Jesus immediately called them, but it says, And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. That's pretty immediate. They left their father in the boat out there fishing, you know, left him with the hired servants. So they respond immediately. But we need to make sure that we understand something here. They, they weren't immediately responding to a man they just met. This wasn't their first encounter with Christ. In other words, this wasn't Jesus just kind of walking down the shore going, hey, what's your name? Your name? You guys want to come and follow me and be on my team? And they're kind of like, hey, that guy looks trustworthy. Let's start following him. And something magical took place and they started following. That's not the way that it happened. Um, this was not their first encounter with Christ. Um, they knew what they were doing. They knew who they were following. And we know that because turn to John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, 35 through 42, we see that one, for sure, if not both, of these men, Simon and Andrew, were um, disciples of John the Baptist. So this happens a year earlier. Look at John 1, 35. It says, Again the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples when he saw Jesus passing by, and he said, Look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and noticed them, he, following him, he asked, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and you'll see, he replied. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about 10 in the morning. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed him. He first found his brother, Simon, and told him, We have found the Messiah. They understood that he's the Messiah, which means anointed one, and he brought Simon to Jesus. When Jesus saw him, he said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which means rock. You can flip back to Mark chapter 1. I just want you to see that for a year, they watched Jesus. For a year, they learned from John about Jesus being the Messiah, about repentance. So when Jesus comes, this isn't like a leap into the darkness with some random guy. Their decision to follow Christ was made after much observation, after gaining knowledge, information about the gospel, how much it would cost. Now, on the surface, it does look like Jesus is coming by. And often, it's interpreted that way. Jesus is coming by, and they just immediately start following this man that they've never met before. But why is it important to understand that a year earlier, they're receiving information and understanding about who Christ is? It's important we interpret it that way because if not, what it does is it leads to dangerous evangelism methods. The way this looks on the surface is how a lot of modern evangelism, even in churches, looks today. Here at, here at our church, we want to encourage you absolutely to follow Christ, but before that, we lay down a command, before we lay down that command, we want to make sure that you know who Jesus is. We want to explain to you about your sin, about the penalty for that sin, about the work that he accomplished on the cross to save you from that penalty and to save you to a life where you're having victory over sin, explain the resurrection, explain the cost that you you face. I've been in church services before where it almost seems like there's this assumption that everyone understands what it means to follow Jesus. There's rarely an explanation of Christ, you know, who He is. Now, a lot of the sweeter stuff that's easier to digest is talked about a lot. But when we talk about the difficult things that are harder to stomach, 
the things that Jesus even talks about, we'll look at one in just a moment, uh, we don't hear those as much. If we lived 250 years ago, it might be a little different, but today, you know, rhetorical question, do average unchurched people have much knowledge of the saving work of Christ? No. And Romans 10, 14 says, How then will they call on Him who they have not believed? And how will they believe in Him who they have not heard? I understand that much maturity and, and knowledge happens on the journey as you begin, but we do have a responsibility before we charge people to follow Christ to make sure they understand who Christ is, lest they be under the false impression that they're following Christ and be in that group of people we see in Matthew 7 who say, Lord, Lord, and Jesus says, Depart from me, I never knew you. So when Jesus arrives at the shore that day, they mentally understood who he was, what he accomplished, and what it would cost them. Yes, they have their issues. Yes, they're not spiritually mature yet. Yes, they have issues with humility, but they understand who he is, and they respond immediately. Verse 18 says, immediately they left their nets and followed him. So there's no hesitation, no debate, no questions. They didn't calculate uh, what this was going to cost them over a long period of time. They didn't uh, seek counsel from friends, from uh, their family. They immediately drop everything and follow him. Why is it so important? Why is immediate obedience important? Not only just at the beginning of your journey and walk with Christ, but throughout. It's, here's the reason. Even though we're good at fooling ourselves that this isn't the case, when we delay in our obedience, it's disobedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. You know what moments, you, know, you, you kind of know what I'm talking about, right? There's even moments in our lives right now maybe where we know what we should be doing, all right? And because we're not doing anything outlandish and morally maybe unacceptable in our minds, we think we're safe, we're okay, but we know in our heart of hearts that maybe there's a neighbor that I should be sharing the gospel with. There's a coworker that I know for months I should have shared my faith with, but we delay. And we kind of fool ourselves into thinking that that's okay, when in reality, delayed obedience is the same as disobedience. Charles Spurgeon says this, do what the Lord bids you, where he bids you, as he bids you, as long as he bids you, and do it at once. So what's the desire of Christ for our life? That we learn to follow him immediately, even when we know it's going to cost a lot, even when we know the cost is great. Now, this is modeled for us by the disciples. They know who Jesus is. They're realizing they're going to, uh, you know, live a pretty radical life, um, but there's no hesitation. Well, not only did they follow quickly, they also responded completely, even though the cost was great. Um, they abandoned their life completely. And we see that in verses 18 and 20, as we just read. We see that they left behind two things, two important things to them. Okay, the idea here is that these are two important things that they had affection for, that they, uh, that they loved, that they gave a lot of their attention. It was their two things that were central in their life. But there's two things that they give up and they loosen their grip on. Number one is their business of fishing. This was their life. It's what they knew most. They, they were comfortable there. They knew boats. They knew currents. They, they knew how to cast their nets. It was a stable source of income, but they leave it. The second was their family. James and John leave their family, um, or leave their dad right there in the boat. That, I, I'm interested to know exactly what that looked like. Guys, where are you going? We've got a lot of fishing to do. Sorry, we've got to follow Christ. Verse 29 it seems to imply that Simon and Andrew leave their families as well. Now, 
It's important to note that they didn't completely cut all ties with their family. So you might be like, well, what's the big deal with that, right? But in the context of that culture, what Jesus is asking them to do was very radical. It would have caused very big problems because in that culture, family was, was central. Family, you got your identity from your family. And so you had a certain type of relationship and bond and connection and daily communication with your family. So when Jesus says, come and follow me, and from here on out, I'm going to have to be more important than your family, this is a very extreme move for these disciples to make. That would have been very difficult for them to let go of that. That's not difficult for us, right? I mean, yes, it is sad to see someone go a long way away, but the, the, the minor changes that we're talking about with these disciples wouldn't be a big deal for us. We're part of a culture where kids move out and say goodbye and, and, you know, to their parents and go to college and communication becomes less frequent. And that's a good thing for, I know, for a lot of us. I know when I went to college, it was kind of a little sad, but we broke ties and I came back and I think my parents were kind of like, we kind of liked, you know, you kind of going off, you know, doing your own thing like that, you know. That's good things, right, in our culture, to move off and to become independent and those things. But in their culture, it it wasn't. So it's hard for us to see that as radical. However, when Jesus says to them, I want priority over your career, that hits home for us. I must be more important than your job. I must be more important than money. We feel that tension more. That's a radical move. Well, what is Jesus ultimately saying here? Is this just about families? Is it just about jobs? No, we know as they go on, they abandon it all. Tim Keller says this, Jesus is saying, knowing me, loving me, resembling me, serving me must be the supreme passion of your life. Everything else must come second. Everything. Now that is a very radical uh, command. And for us to kind of throw all in with that or to sing a song like I surrender all and mean it, you know, I think we do hold back maybe a little bit. The thought of just throwing completely into that is a little scary. There might be several reasons, but maybe here's one. The language might sound a little fanatical and extreme, and, you know, we don't like religious fanatical people, right? The, the, the violent ones especially, and, and even the annoying ones. You all know the annoying religious fanatical people, maybe in your family? Just always condescending, always like a, a one, one example of that is the, uh, that's kind of annoying, is a super spiritual person, you know? You ever been around super spiritual man or super spiritual woman? And like you'll be in a conversation with them and they'll be like, it's on Sunday morning, well, what did you do yesterday? Well, to be honest, I had a, uh, a long week of work and I just kind of slept in and just hung out. Not me. Nope. I was up at 3.30 a.m. in the Word because reading the Word is more important to me than, than your sinful sleeping, you know? And it's like, really? And you run into the, and that's an extreme example, but you run into people who are super spiritual, who are judgmental. And it's like, I don't want to become that, right? But at the same time, I don't want to be uncommitted, which is on the opposite end. So what we do, especially in American Christianity, is we try to find like some middle of the road type of commitment. And the question is, is does Jesus leave room for that? It's important. Moderation and balance is good in some parts of our lives. But is moderation something that Jesus leaves room for when he talks about coming and following him? Flip over to Luke chapter 14. Here Jesus continues teaching about what it means to follow. And let's see if 
Let's see if he leaves room for it. If you're there, say, I'm there. Cool. Luke chapter 14, verse 25 and 26. He says, now, now, as I read this, I just think this is interesting. You tell me as we read this whether or not Jesus is interested in building crowds and instant numerical growth and seeker sensitivity. He says, now great crowds were traveling with him, so a big entourage is building and gathering. So he turned to them and said, hey, listen, wait, if anyone's going to come to me, now remember the context of the culture they're in where family's important, and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, you can't be my disciple. That's a very clear, disruptive, tough, difficult command. Is there a pass in there to fall somewhere in the middle? There's not. It's just not there. If we're going to follow Christ, he makes it clear that we have to hate our family, that we have to hate our own life. Now before you, what he's talking about hate, what does that mean? To hate? I thought the Bible teaches against hate. I thought it even says not to hate your enemies, but to love your enemies. Well, you don't have to turn there, but you can jot down if you're taking notes. Matthew 10.37 helps us interpret that verse correctly. Matthew 10.37. It says this, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So that verse helps us understand exactly what Jesus is talking about when he says hate. It's not a, a mean hatred. We, we, can, we can understand that he means this, that hatred here means to love less. To love things less, which is to let go, to loosen your grip, on things that you have affections for in this life, that you're clinging to in this life, that are receiving much of your attention and ultimately turning and clinging to Christ alone. Getting to a place where He's all you have, all you want, and all you need. Jesus continues that teaching as well in Matthew 6.24 when He talks about you can't have two masters. He says this in Matthew 6.24, No one can be a slave of two masters since he either will hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot be slaves of God and money. Now, I wonder if we kind of turn the scalpel on ourselves this morning. If we see that even in the church, it's easy sometimes to um, find ourselves trying to have two masters. But it's impossible. It's kind of, you see that in what we can call if Christianity. You know, someone who might say, Jesus, I'll obey you if my career goes well. Jesus, I'll obey you if my health is good. Jesus, I'll obey you if my family stays together. Jesus, I'll obey you if my life stays comfortable and is exactly the way that I desire it to be. What's the problem with that? The problem is that if you approach Christianity that way, whatever is on the right side of your if, that is actually your real master. You're attempting to have two masters, but in reality, Jesus isn't your master. Jesus just becomes like your means to whatever you want, your goal, your good career, your good health, your, your, your family situation. That's the, the way you desire it. To truly follow Christ, here it is. Jesus has to be your goal. Jesus has to be your goal. As the disciples leave their boats and nets 
and families, there are no ifs for them. There are no, Jesus, I'll follow you if. It's a complete abandonment of everything on the other side of the if. They take their hands completely off the steering wheel of their careers, of certain types of relationships, of things they care about, desires, goals, and aspirations, and put themselves, put themselves at the complete disposal of Christ and say, Jesus, here I am. You're my master. You're number one now in my life forever. And their devotion was so supreme and complete that it made everything else in their life look like hate. When I uh, think of completely what it looks like to completely respond um, to the radical call of Jesus, I think of a few stories outside of the Word of God as, you know, throughout Christian history, I think of a few stories that I think illustrate what that a complete abandonment looks like. And uh, the first one is one that I heard my dad use over the years after several messages concerning surrender and completely, um, you know, uh, putting yourself at the disposal of Christ. And it's a story of a great um, Christian uh, man who lived in, in China, who was a great intellectual, he was a Chinese man. He, in his community and, and really across the country, he was known for uh, translating different textbooks from around the world into Chinese. He was a very smart guy, very well respected, but very committed in his walk. And when the communists were taking over China after World War II, um, his friends, because he was so committed to making disciples and so committed to, uh, to living publicly his, his faith, his friends like, really tried to talk him in and persuade him to moving out of the country because they knew the persecution was going to come. But he refused. He said, this is where God's called me. This is what I'm doing. Um, even, whatever it costs me, I'm going to stay here. Well, eventually... Um, you know, a little while later, the communists came in, arrested him, put him in prison. Well, it was like, it was almost like a Paul thing. You know, guards were getting saved, and they were smuggling out, you know, things that he was writing, and he became an irritation to uh, the communist leaders. And to make an example of him, they went in to the village where he was at, took him to the village square, invited the village to come and watch um, so that they would teach them a lesson and lay down a boundary, and they began to torture him publicly. And as the story goes, they say that the, that the, the soldiers went up, lifted one arm, arm up into the air, cut it off at the elbow, his arm falls to the ground, lift the other arm up, cut off at the elbow, it falls to the ground. And according to the villagers who were watching this, the next thing that happened, he lifts up what is left of his arms and cries out, thank you, God, for the marks of the cross. I think of another story uh, of, you know, you've heard this story probably before about Jim Elliott, four other missionaries from America, leave the American dream in the 1950s to go and disciple and reach unreached groups in the jungles of South America. They uproot their family. They leave all of it behind. They begin to strategize to get to these Indians, to share the gospel with them, to see them saved, to know the saving power of Christ. And they get close, they, they make contact with them, but there's a misunderstanding. The Indians believe that they're there to harm them, and they kill these missionaries, all five of them. I think of another story about two young Moravian missionaries, John Elliott, I'm sorry, not John Elliott, John Dober and David Nitchman who heard about 3,000 slaves from the jungles of Africa 
that were being uh, shipped out to an island in the Atlantic by a British planner who was an atheist who had them all out there as slaves and had the reputation of keeping them out there for their entire life until they died. And these two young Christians hear about this. Their heart begins to uh, just tug them in a direction of ministering to those slaves, those thousands of slaves on that island. So they sell themselves into slavery. They use the money that they gain from selling themselves into slavery to this British man who is in charge of this island to, to pay for their trip out to this island. And as the story goes, as their families are weeping on the pier, as they're sailing out into the distance, never to see them again, one of the missionaries yells out from the back of that boat, a young man, may the Lamb of God that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. Now we hear stories like that, and I wonder you know, what our reactions are. We might admire that from a distance. We might cringe and go, oh, that's sad. Certainly the world would look at stories like that and say, man, what a tragedy. But is it really a tragedy? Is it? Is it a tragedy? No. If we were able to find those people right now who lost their life somehow in heaven and asked them, was that a tragedy? What do you think they would say? Absolutely not. I've experienced no other joy than spending my life and putting my life at the disposal of Christ while I was living my life on earth. You know what a tragedy is? A tragedy is a person who wastes his or her life because they refuse to abandon the idol of comfort or career advancement or something else and as a result get to the end of their life and realize they can incompletely follow Christ. A tragedy is a person who tries to settle down in some non-existent middle-of-the-road commitment to Christ only to find out when it's said and done that Jesus wasn't their true master. I'm not saying that every path needs to look like those three stories that we just talked about. That the heart of each of those stories is this abandonment of life that every single disciple of Christ must realize. Jim Elliott, one of those... Um, missionaries in South America, he actually wrote this. He said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. For those who are not believers here this morning, who hear the call of Christ, You've heard last week a clear presentation of the gospel. This week you see a clear picture of what that looks like. And I simply say, follow Christ. In just a moment, Pastor Dan's going to be down here. Come and talk to him. We want to talk to you more about that. To others, do do you have any ifs this morning? Are there things that you need to abandon in order that you might center your life around Christ and not waste it? altar is going to be open and it's a great opportunity after the word's just been delivered um, and it's still fresh on your minds to respond but I challenge you to lay your life next to scripture this morning and respond let's pray Father for those of us who hear the call for those of us who know the call to follow Christ which is to take up our cross, to know suffering, to deny ourselves, to be done with this life. 
um, by the grace of God, may our response be radical like the disciples, Father, lest, lest hours, lest days, lest years be tragically wasted. May we lay our lives next to your word and respond. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand and sing and uh, respond as the Lord leads? Please, please be seated. I want to ask for our uh, 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 ushers to come forward at this time as we uh, continue our worship and giving and receiving of tithes. If you are a guest, we do ask if you put that guest card in the plate. We would really love to get to know who you are. Please join me in prayer. Dear God, we thank you as we continue to worship you in this service and giving of tithes and offerings, Lord. Help us to be faithful. Help us to seek you, to trust you and follow you with all that we are, with all that we have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Well, are you excited that you are here today? I hope so. And take that home with you. I heard something that was scary. Uh, and um, and so we, we're glad that you're here. We we I would like to thank the all the band that came to to lead us in wor- worship today. And John, Jonathan, well done, my friend.